For February 4th, 2018, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 553. Where did the monkeys go? Hey, Overthinkers, it's Matt. Listen, Pete and I had some technical problems with this episode tonight. We just couldn't get Skype to cooperate with us. Over 10 years we've been doing this show, and we're still in the same love-hate relationship with that piece of software. There's literally nothing better, and yet it's barely adequate at times. Uh, We wrestle with it on a weekly basis, and this week it won the wrestling match. So about 10 minutes in, we cut over to cell phone, and you'll still hear Pete, but his sound quality will be degraded. We considered stopping there and just making it a short run, but uh, we had a lot of stuff we wanted to say about the Super Bowl ads. So thanks in advance for your forbearance with all of that. And, uh, you know, we we know it's less than ideal and we will uh, try to fix it for the next episode. Anyway, still a lot of good things that we say on this about Super Bowl ads. So please enjoy the show. Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The overthinkers are like a victorious Super Bowl team. We're never happier than when we're hanging out together, talking to each other, and and celebrate just dominating, dominating year after year, dominating all the other podcasts. Serial, sit down. Freakonomics, freak a who, how stuff works, how stuff jerks. <laughs> <laughs> because you little are, punchy, Matt. You little punchy. I, I've watched a lot of football, Peter. I'm feeling aggressive. I've had Did you bet on the Rams and the orphanage is going to close now. Is that yeah, what's going on? Absolutely. The Rams of Los. The Rams of Los Angeles. Randy's Donuts, the uh, iconic LA uh, donut shop that has the big donut sculpture. I hesitate to call it a sculpture. It's a giant cement donut. <laughs> Uh, up above the story. It's, it's, uh, famous from Iron Man where, uh, Tony Stark gets drunk and wakes up one morning, like, uh, in the Iron Man suit sitting in the Randy's donut, uh, uh, painted itself to be LA Rams donuts. You know, we were, we were sort of thrilled to, to be in the big show. I guess the city was this year, but, uh, last it was not to be, uh, the Patriots of your new England, uh, because I, <laughs> you, you instructed me not to call them your new England Patriots, Pete have, have, uh, emerged victorious. Congratulations to you and to the sports franchise from your region, which has defeated the sports franchise from my region. Pete Fenzel. Well, I am looking forward to, thank you very much, another decade of Rob Gronkowski-themed sandwiches, <laughs> which will be launching gradually on an iterated basis throughout the broader New England area for the next 25 to 30 years. <laughs> so, <laughs> Excellent. Uh, well, that, that, that is Mr. Pete Fenzel. I'm Matt Rather. Uh, it's, it is one of our story two-handers tonight because all of the other overthinkers uh, had the good sense to go to sleep. But it's, it's Pete and me burning the midnight oil, him more than me, because uh, he is on the East Coast. Um, so thank you for podcasting late at night. And we are here to talk football. Let's take it play by play, <laughs> Pete. Let's just break down the, the action of the. No, we're doing our, uh, our normal, what, 10, 11 year tradition now where we talk about the Super Bowl ads where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve through the medium of the 30 second spot on 
the Super Bowl. Uh, let's, uh, let's dive in. Pete, you are usually the great narrativizer of Super Bowl ads. And this is, this is a role like, uh, like the patriarch who plays Santa every year at the family party. You sit us down, you know, take the children up on your knee and tell them, uh, where the culture is at based on, uh, based on the Super Bowl spots that we, that we have seen this evening. So, Tell us, Pete, uh, tell us, a, a prognosticator, a Nostradamus, <laughs> as, as, uh, with as penetrating an insight as Tony Roma. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what, what does <laughs> this year's Super Bowl betoken for the culture in 2019? So to me, I want to talk a little bit about fiction. Yeah. Because commercials are always fiction in one degree or another. They are made up. That even when they reflect real, real events, they are telling them in such a way that involves kind of imagination and the mapping of associated and created ideas onto some sort of correspondence of reality. But nothing, you know, it's even even when commercials or documentaries, they're still fiction. So it is not a unique thing to say that the Super Bowl commercials are concerned with fiction. But it is interesting the ways in which the Super Bowl commercials this year were concerned with fiction. And I I read something of a fault line in the middle or perhaps off to the side, maybe about one fourth or one fifth of the way off to the side of the Super Bowl ads. You could tell me whether you saw this as well or not, wherein the pre-existing situation. There's often kind of a real world situation that informs the context that we use to narrativize the Super Bowl ads and we look for cues in it in the ads. And then we sort of look past the real world situation into the particular sort of fiction that's being presented. So an example might be we're in the midst of the financial crisis and it's all about masculinity in crisis. Right. And the the fiction is about this particular sort of truck oriented and beer oriented manhood that needs to be uh, kind of affirmed or kind of cries out in the darkness and somehow and this was this is like sort of past super bowls in recent years have kind of oscillated around this uh kind of center of this sort of moment of inertia the center of gravity uh, around kind of the failure of the cultural identity that's associated with uh football fans and this is the year when they gave up Right. And I'm not necessarily. <laughs> I don't know. Necess- there's no. I would have called what you're describing like sublimation or displacement somehow. Right. Like I, I would have used like psychoanalytic language to describe that. Like we can't talk about the real thing. Uh, we can't talk about the real thing that we're talking about because it's too sensitive. But uh, we're going to talk about something else. Right. And so. The situation, right, is that uh, the real world has become intolerable for people and particularly for the kind of people who are football fans. And this is where there is the sort of salient cleavage here. But let's put aside that for just a moment and revisit it after we kind of set the stage. The real world has become intolerable. It is no longer okay to embrace a fiction related to your own identity. Uh, There's too much pain associated with it. There's too much failure associated with it. In particular, there's a lot of of, uh, sensitivity to the idea that the productivity of humans has been replaced and will continue to be replaced by automation and technology. And as such, uh, in retreat, from this sense of failure, people are embracing their capacity for seeking enjoyment and specifically their capacity for seeking entertainment in comforting fictions. 
and in fictions that are part not not necessarily just comforting because they connect with a specific need, but which are historically experienced in the history of the popular culture. Uh, and and the salient cleavage is between the tech companies and everybody else, right? Because then the tech companies are doing great, and so for the tech companies, the future is optimistic, right? The story is about an authentic human experience, which they're still trying to tell you that they present through their various sorts of uh, you know high resolution iPhone photos and. Uh, really grounded and earthy Instagram filters, right? They're like, oh, the world will be better in the future. And this is the story that the tech companies are still saying. This is acknowledging that the tech companies are own you, right? That they are they are the ones who dictate the, the future. And then everybody else has this sort of side character of the technology, which is like, is you have, you have acknowledged that they are basically in charge and that they are basically the ones who are capable of producing and doing and making. And all you are left with is the capacity to enjoy. And this is the sort of, uh, this is the, the consumer, this is just a weird sort of consumerist existentialist hybrid. And the way that you enjoy is that you depart or retreat, depending upon you, whether you think of this as a sort of retreat or an advance, you depart this realm and you go to the realm where you can experience things like Game of Thrones, Aquaman, Steve Carell doing a skit, right? Uh, like very specific sorts of fictional worlds, giant pinball machines, the dude, right? The dude, the dude, the dude, and Carrie from Sex in the City. You would rather consider the part of your own life that is engaging with the Big Lebowski and with Sex in the City and with things like that than with the part of your life that is associated with the uh, confrontation with your own obsolescence. <laughs> and uh, there were a number of commercials that were just crushed with ennui and sadness around this idea of hopelessness and uselessness. And also a number of commercials that made the philosophical argument that humanity's superiority to machines is not geared in traditional sorts of places like love or creativity or change, but instead in humanity's ability to enjoy consumer goods and consumer entertainments. And uh, this definitely seemed like a, a, a divergence and one that really located us not in a fictional version of ourselves, but in a reminiscence of past fictions. Right. A sort of not even it wasn't even particularly nostalgic in the way that it was referential. You know, the Supra pinball machine commercial wasn't nostalgic for pinball machines. It was more relying on the fact that pinball machines are a headspace for you since that you, is not real yeah since you bring it up pete the super pinball commercial can, mm -hmm. can you just do a little capsule history of of what is the super and why uh, could you do a vox <laughs> explainer on uh, uh, apparently toyota makes a sports car Yes. So Toyota has historically made sports cars at different times. Uh, it's been a while since they've made one. They've made the, with the Supra, the Celica, the MR2, different sorts of sports cars from at least 20 years ago that are, uh, well, maybe not quite at least 20 years ago, at least 15 years ago across the board that um, are looked back on fondly, but that Toyota moved away from. And so when Toyota moved away from making those kinds of sports cars, uh, faster cars, you know, they, they filled a variety of niches. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell uh, you, I like my nice hybrid Camry, but it's not a fast car. No, no, exactly. They did make the Scion line, which included the TC. They weren't willing to put the Toyota Celica nameplate on it, but they called it a TC, right? And then they also made the uh, BRZ slash FRS with Subaru. And this kind of indicated a new era for Toyota, 
where they would shop out the sporty aspects of their cars to other manufacturers. Wait, who it were was more a, focused on it. it was a collab. They did a yeah. col- they did a collab Toyota X Subaru. <laughs> Yeah, Toyota and Subaru are a collaboration that made the BRS, the BRZ, and the FRS, which are a Subaru and a Scion. The Scion FRS is now the Toyota 86. It is a small sports car, not particularly pop, uh, powerful, but people soup it up a lot. And it is very low to the ground and is known for having kind of skinny wheels and kind of slippity slidey, a little bit kind of fun handling, that kind of stuff. And the Supra is a similar project to the BRZ FRS, or really the Toyota 86. Because it is a collaboration with BMW. So the Toyota Supra underneath is a BMW. Wow. Uh, but it's got kind of a Toyota skin. It's got certain aspects of it that are more Toyota. But uh, a pre- uh, understand that what you're dealing with is like a sporty BMW that's been rebadged as a Toyota and given more of a kind of Toyota look and feel. Similar to how the Mazda 2 was rebadged and given a new look and feel as a sedan for the Scion IA, which became the Toyota Yaris IA. Uh. Uh, so that's a lot of information. But, but 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 I have heard at least one cousin of mine say that the return of the Supra was the best part of the Super Bowl. Huh. In fact, they might as well just call it the Supra Bowl at this point because that's the high point that they're dealing with. It certainly isn't missing field goals that's really getting people to tune in. Uh, but yeah, so the Supra is coming back and that's exciting. But it's a different sort of animal than it was before. Um, if you want to talk about the Kia Telluride as well, or is that <laughs> that I thought the like? Kia Telluride commercial was very. In, I I looked at that commercial and I was like, now that is a Super Bowl commercial because for whatever reason, like I have come to associate the kind of the paradigm of Super Bowl commercials with the uh, American Heartland. You know, we're not famous here, but we're proud of what we do. We're proud of what we mm-hmm. build. You know, with like. Uh, blue tinge cinematography and a kind of a Marvel-esque uh, bombastic and kind of overly intrusive score and a, uh, you know, just a sense of portentousness, uh, portentousness to the whole um, to the whole thing. And that like that, you know, I couldn't tell the difference between the Kia Telluride commercial um, and, and all this, all this Americana for a, a Korean brand of car, you know, um, versus uh like the actual avengers movie trailer (laughs) well that's the thing right is that the the entertainments were advertised as real and the real things were advertised as entertainment i guess i mean yeah i guess there is kind of a parallel technology story that goes along with this where um sort of film and television production and, and gradually, you know, gra- I shouldn't say gradually, like, uh, they've been on a collision course for a while now and they've converged, um, you know, sudden, uh, gradually at first and then quickly, suddenly, um, like it makes Marvel style effects in the re- in reach of more kinds of producers of things. Right. So if you want, you can imitate a look and it's not like sort of Hollywood film is this, uh, unattainable thing anymore a lot of people can get that look a lot of people can get those tricks that same bag of tricks Mm -hmm. um you know for their 30 second spot and it helps if you only have to produce 30 seconds of film instead of you know 14 or 15 hours or whatever avengers endgame is going to be it was it was really interesting that you said that your default or 
I don't know if it's default or kind of main. I'm going to call it main sequence. Your sort of main sequence Super Bowl ad, to use like a astronomical metaphor, yeah. is the Americana. You know, we make beer for working people because you know I make I make car parts for the American working man because that's who I am and that's what I care about, right? To quote Tommy Boy, uh, and that's for you the default baseline main sequence kind of Super Bowl ad. And for me, the default main sequence baseline Super Bowl ad in my mind is like the dancing E-Trade monkeys. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? When like whenever when the when tech bubble is riding high and all of a sudden all these new companies have access to millions and millions of dollars that they didn't previously have. And there was that one year where multiple different companies thought it would be funny to be the one company that made the joke that they wasted the money on their Super Bowl ad on nonsense. And so you had like dancing monkeys and crazy babies. And even like blank screens that said, we just wasted two million dollars. Right. Like and it was this whole dance of uh, this dance of kind of festivity and kind of opulence that was that was like, oh, wow, I get to put something up in the Super Bowl. And so for me, like that's kind of feels like the baseline experience, like you get to put up a Super Bowl ad and Bud Bowl is there, too, in this kind of realm of absurdity and celebration. And then that progresses towards as you become kind of more and more concerned with people's problems and less and less concerned with the idea that the Super Bowl is like a, a festivity, right? You, you're less and less concerned with the notion that the, you're at the Super Bowl and you're more and more concerned with the problems of the people that you're trying to talk to. There's this area that you eventually get to where things appeal to an authenticity. But I feel like if you keep going, it goes back and becomes absurd again. Right? That it's like if you if you if you don't care at all about people's problems, then you got dancing monkeys and Bud Bowl fighting people, right? And then if you care a little bit about people's problems, you gradually get to the point where like the Dodge Ram is talking about how we all should like care about each other and love each other and, and sort of respect the hard work that we all do. Right. And then if you keep going from there, you eventually get to the point where it's like uh it's intolerable that the waiter at the at the restaurant asks you if Pepsi is okay. And this must be addressed by like a three superstar cameo with like a diamond encrusted Pepsi can, right? Like it's like, uh, like we need to find the monkeys. Where did the monkeys go? (laughs) (laughs) And like bring the monkeys back because they knew why we were here and we don't anymore. So, (laughs) yeah, I, I guess the, the enterprise of football, itself has become a lot more troubled recently right the um the uh the concussion scandal and Colin Kaepernick a couple years ago mm-hmm. and like the the kind of they were really to to take a Fenzelian phrase from 10 11 years ago uh, they were really humping the piano key of social <laughs> of social justice right like they were really and those What do you mean by who is they you mean the, the commercial the NFL the oh, NFL the, the league you're talking about yeah. the league because you're speaking very dismissively i wouldn't speak that way about people like Colin Kaepernick but the way the no, actual no, 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 league no, no. Was yeah Sorry, yeah. I mean the 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 administration and the owners. The I guess it, the league is the owners, right? So yeah. like uh, that kind of class of of people is sort of putting on is it seems like a sop to the the very 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 many people who are um, 
sympathetic to the protest of Colin Kaepernick and, and who think it's sort of a travesty that he was, uh, that he doesn't play football anymore and that like, um, you know, who, and, and for whom the issues of social justice are not a kind of abstract pie in the sky, uh, idea, but like a, a day-to-day concern of whether you're going to get extrajudicially murdered by the police or not, right. uh, just for, just for walking down the street. It seems, I mean, and it seems cynical to me, but, but, you know, of course, they didn't have a choice but to do that. Cynical, I mean, I guess actually caring. I mean, actually, are, are you talking about the Martin Luther King Jr. ad that ran at the beginning of the Super Bowl? Did you see that one? That that and was the, yeah, and the tribute, and they had the real on the field tribute, which both felt good and bad. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, yeah. it's it's good because you know, just on the merits, it deserves to be commemorated, right? right. Uh, it's bad because it seems cynical under the circumstances that we should commemorate it here and now, that these people should commemorate it here and now. Right, after how they treated the people who were trying to draw attention to these kinds of issues. Yeah, and, and who, yeah. Are the actual, who are the actual kind of successors, who have actually taken up the mantle of you know, nonviolent protest against grievous social wrongs. You know? And now you see why it's a Bud Light commercial that's also a Game of Thrones commercial. <laughs> <laughs> so, we, so we just give up. So your, your narrative this year is just, this is the year that we've given up, right? This is the year that... That, that is it is it like fatigue and exhaustion or is it is it something darker than that is it just like look caring is too much trouble like it's too these multi multi-dimensional continuous and hyper-dimensional intersectional conflicts of of things i i can't figure out what good is anymore so uh i'm gonna i'm gonna like do a uh uh, sentimental WeatherTech ad for a dog water bowl. I, I felt like that we- the WeatherTech ads are always grossly out of step with all the other ads because WeatherTech is just throwing money at something they don't understand. Uh, they Last year, their ad was terrible, I think. But anyway, and I do love dogs, but it was notable that WeatherTech was, I think, the only cute dog ad. Maybe there was one or two others. Yeah, but on, like- the, on top of the Bud, Budweiser, um, I nearly said hearse, stagecoach. Uh, there was a dog, there was a cute dog. There was like a Dalmatian or something. It's ears flapping in the breeze. So, uh, is this, I think it's time for us to consider the Pringles ad, which was the ad that most kind of directly confronted, I think the issues of the day, Yeah, Uh, (laughs) which was the one where they were, and there were a lot of Super Bowl ads this year, which were recalling previous Super Bowl ads almost as sequels and considering how how changing context affected the meaning of the Super Bowl ad, which I thought was interesting. We reconsider the Pringles stack. This idea that's been put forward in past Super Bowl ads as this fun thing, relatively light, relatively low stakes to a bunch of the other things that are being presented to you in Super Bowl ads, but of a piece with things like get the truck so that you can feel good about yourself. The Pringles stack is this childlike thing that you can experience again, like mixing the sodas at the Burger King. It's this fun thing that you can access through Pringles. But we meet these two men later on, after they have been attempting the Pringles stack for some time, surrounded by an improbably 
wide array of Pringles flavors that they've been using to create these steps and increasingly uh, dissatisfied and frustrated themselves through this endeavor, right? One must imagine Pringles Sisyphus happy would be what a philosopher might say in this situation. But in this case, uh, Pringles Sisyphus is utterly depressed. And they turn, of course, to their master who has emerged in the intervening year, like so many nonlinear Westworld plots. We find out that these men's lives this whole time has been managed by their home assistants, their Alexa, their Google Home, their whatever, their Siri, whatever it is, their little pod, right? And they turn to their little pod and the pod tells them about what their situation is, which is their desperate depression, the meaninglessness of their lives. I'm not quoting it word for word, but the pod starts expressing things which you, in this kind of conversation, might endeavor to see as, quote-unquote, the truth, right? Even though necessarily, like, you know, being unhappy isn't just the truth. Things that are dark and gritty aren't necessarily realistic. Uh, you know, cakes and ale and whatnot, things don't cease to be funny, even when they are serious. And yet, this is where the sort of authenticity lives in this commercial, this sense of dread and despair and hopelessness. And at that point, the Pringles person says, play Funky Town, right? <laughs> and and the machine just jumps seamlessly into playing, nah, 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 nah. won't you take me to Funky Town? And that is what offers the sort of celebratory sting of the Pringles. And it's, of course, the sting that relieves the sting. <laughs> the sort of stinger, not the Kia stinger, but the stinger of this familiar song and, and the fun that it kind of forces into the situation. It's transportative. It, it is enough to take you out of the failure of your attempts at Pringles-related personal fulfillment and instead transport uh, that you know has provided with you a certain amount of enjoyment, right? And we've talked about how in these ads, the human beings, they're capable of enjoyment. And the robots are not capable of enjoyment, but the robots own everything else. They eat the hot dogs. They go to baseball games. They're better parents than you. They're, they're better at your job. They, you know, they do all of this. Even the Can You Hear Me Now guy is surrounded by robots who are doing this job for him. And, 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 uh, and so that's, that's kind of your situation, right, is that, like, uh, the funky town plays you out. Right, the funky town plays well. <laughs> but the, um, yeah, and the the and it's but the I I guess so. You're making an interpretive move that I just want to clarify a little bit, which is that um, it, the speaker, the smart speaker, is talking to the two men about um, about how the smart speaker will never you know, know the joy of true love or can never really uh, experience the transcendence of, of, of a Pringle stack. Right. But, but, right. but, but really your read is that, that the smart speaker is actually expressing a, a sense of futility um, that belongs to the two, the two human characters in the commercial and not to the, not to the robot world in general, that, that again, there's some kind of like displacement of the, um, you know, of this sort of depressive uh, uh, alienation that people feel in this, you know, in, in this kind of post-work economy, right. To that displacement of that onto the, the robot, Robots, as though they're the ones who ought to be sad. It's interesting. Yeah, I, I am making a leap there. And I guess because it doesn't seem like when there are multiple commercials in the Super Bowl that have sad robots, <laughs> robots that are incapable of understanding their situation. But the people aren't happy. Right. Like the people are also sad. So it's almost like people have made the robots in their own image. And the one thing that the people have not enabled the robots to do is endeavor upon the pleasure of, of partaking of the product, right? And like, uh, and I guess more than just the product, but the, the entertainment 
right, uh, that is associated with the kind of transportation and all that other stuff we've been talking about. But, yeah, that is a big of a leap, right? What do you think about that, this idea, like, do you think that it's supposed to be something of a comfort to see the robots as unhappy? That it's that Because it's, one of the aspects of this that I think is interesting is that the people seem to have more or less come to terms with the fact that the robots are in charge. It's not like it's a bunch of people like we're going to destroy the robots. We are miles away from an Apple 1984 smash the giant television commercial. We're sort of like a bunch of people who are sort of relatively comfortable with a terrible situation. Um, and I mean, we can depart from that conversation a little bit, but I'm, I'm definitely curious what you think about that, about what does it mean that the robots are exhibiting the anxiety that I would assume would be attributable to the people. Yeah. I mean, I, no, I think it's, I think it is what I, what I say. I think there is a kind of, psycho, yeah. there's a kind of psychoanalytic mechanism or a, there, there is a mechanism. There's a psychological mechanism that is described uh, in various ways in psychoanalysis and in, in the kind of psychoanalytic theory type of, of, um, of psychology, right? Because it has to do with an intolerable conflict within the self, right? Uh, with really a, a narcissistic injury, like a, uh, a, <laughs> a danger a um a wound to one's self image you know that like uh that it, it and it has to do with agency here before it was like masculinity we we talked about the kind of masculinity i'm not the king of the castle anymore like this medieval a lot of this medieval stuff i think is sort of a remnant of that uh the idea that there's a king um you know good good luck doing that in game of thrones by the way like good good luck with your stable patriarchy and and uh advertising game <laughs> of thrones uh, i wish you all the best with that but um uh, you know, that, uh, like there's a se- there's a wound, I think, to the sense of agency, to the sense that I can kind of make something happen. And that's why the kind of the insistence, that's why there's a kind of tragic tone and, and not just because of the creepy child voiceover, but, um, you know, but because of the kind of the elegiac tone to the, um, Kia Telluride commercial of like, we make a thing, you know, because nobody, no humans make a thing anymore, you know, unless it's on a very small scale and like is done in Brooklyn and it's overpriced, you know, relative to the, like the, the cost of the commoditized version of that product. And, um, you know, that that's not that, that you don't make things, uh, anymore and you're not really capable of right of of making a thing it's funny like it working in technology when i do like a computer programming thing when i you know build a application or or something like that for a uh for a client who has a um a need for an application to you know run on phones or websites or whatever happens like the, the world is not altered uh, in any particular way in, in terms of the, the physical world. I mean, I guess we've, you know, burned some fossil fuel and, and, uh, I, you know, I don't know, some people's time has been, has been taken up, but it's not like you can like look at the, uh, at the beginning of the day, you know, you look at your pile of uncranked widgets next to your widget cranking machine. And at the end of the day, there's a whole pile of cranked widgets next to your widget cranking machine. You know, it's not that sort of satisfaction and that, that sort of, um, 
the the sense of self-worth that comes along with that and i'm completely uh i'm completely discounting the sort of socialist critique of this kind of la- of this sort of alienated labor right but like the at at the end of the day you know um i believe uh maybe maybe it was um John Parrish on Overthinking It, who said it a while back, uh, who said, like, even if you're the crappiest T-shirt company in the world, remember when Internet T-shirt companies were a thing? Even if you're the crappiest (laughs) T-shirt company in the world, at the end of the day, there's some shirts, right? And and the 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 this is a long way around the barn to make this point. But like the um, the situation that we're in for a lot of a lot of workers in this economy, uh, the ones lucky enough to, to, you know, be employed in a, in a living wage type of job, like is at the end of the day, there's nothing, you know, at the end of the day, you haven't sort of made, made a thing. And even if you're a, a, a worker in the service sector, even doing crucial jobs, like, like, uh, uh, healthcare, elder care, um, you know, I don't know, food service, you know, um, you're probably so bureaucratized that, that you don't really even feel a a lot of the times it could be possible not to feel the, uh, kind of human connection or whatever that makes that, that stuff, um, fulfilling for people. So, so there's been this sort of wound to our, to our sense of, of agency and like the recompense that we have for it is that is that we can tell the the smart speaker to play funky town right that that like we have this we have this notional domination over the machines we have this uh dominion right over the um the things that we've created uh who who are supposed to listen to us who ought to who ought to do our bidding who ought to do um who ought to do what we say and like that's the you know that's the situation that that we find ourselves in that that i think gives rise to this this sort of sense of of alienation i mean it's it's i called it like earlier in the show i called it a post-work economy right and what does it you know, what does it look like? Like, how do we come to terms with the idea that like the economy doesn't need all of us to do a job, you know, and because advances in, in automation and, you know, productivity have gone to, to such an extent that, that you probably like, there probably is a robot that, that can do your manufacturing job better than you. And by the way, we're pretty close to a robot who can do your white collar job better than you, right? It's not just the, it's not just the, the, the Stevie doors and the manufacturers and the, the mill workers and, and what have you who, you know, have to fear the, uh, you know, robot invasion. It's the, the transactional lawyers and it's the computer programmers and it's the, you know, the nice stable new economy uh you know upper middle class white collar jobs who who should hear the the um the sort of oh what is the who should hear the the whatever the sound of inevitability uh scratching at the door i think my favorite commercial of the whole super bowl was the one where the person was in a sort of field of dreams pastiche yeah and his father showed him the Audi e-tron or t-tron or whatever it is, right? And the the like Audi Tesla competitor, and and it's 
discovered that he is in the process of choking to death on a cashew <laughs> and was like summoned unwillingly back to the earth and to his grim and, ple- and pleasant free job among his kind of joyless coworkers. Uh, and when he very well could be dead and driving an Audi. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and not only an Audi, but an Audi from the future, right? That solves that that speaks to progress and all these other things. I don't know if it's a particularly optimistic sort of commercial with regards to sales volume of said Audi. That the only way that the person in the commercial can acquire it is to die and have it delivered to him as either a burst of DMT or an an afterworld recompense for a life well lived. <laughs> like I don't know if that necessarily bodes well. But in in terms of like this narcissistic injury, you can see how deep it runs in this. And again, obviously, it's not like all these commercials are built with the consideration of all the other commercials in mind. I mean, they sort of are. They sort of aren't. There's various sorts of ways that these things are communicated with each other. But there does seem to be some moment here that shares this injury. Uh, I mean, what was your favorite commercial my, for the Super Bowl this my year? My favorite one for the commercial is not doesn't have to do with our uh, our main narrative. It's the one that compares pornography addiction and uh, frozen prepared meals. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> I forget what was it called? Devour. Right, right. Uh, was the brand name of the of the you know heat and serve entrees, but the the it was the the commercial where I guess the narrator was the a, a woman in a relationship with a man who. Um, discovered that he had a, a sort of a secret, an addiction. He couldn't stop this compulsive behavior that he had. Um, you know, he, he was hiding it from her. Uh, he's become, as she said, he's become a three minute man, you know, uh, right. Referring of course, to the three minutes in the microwave that it takes to heat up the, the devour frozen dinner, um, that the, uh, you know that he's uh and on and on he's um uh what they they've started watching amateur videos together and it's like <laughs> it's awful the you know they're sitting at the the computer watching like food hub you know people like uh people preparing and eating uh, you know lean cuisines or something or i guess it's it's got to stay brand uh, on brand like other devour dinners and things like this and that that like um how she's tried to spice things up, you know, and you see her like making a nice dinner wearing, wearing a little negligee or nightgown or something like that. Um, the, uh, that, that, that was my favorite, right? Like, because that, I don't know, it, it just seemed, it seemed the cheekiest, I guess, to me, uh, a little bit though. I, I guess Andy Warhol eating Burger King. Um, <laughs> <laughs> did you look up, was, is that real footage? I I do not know. Uh, I'd yeah. have to I'd have to ask my friend Google. But like, does it matter? You know, <laughs> I mean, like, it's so it seems so off the mark for their uh, for what I imagine the demo for the Super Bowl to be. Um, I guess I guess maybe that's maybe that's the point. Like, but I liked uh, I like this uh, devour frozen frozen food thing. I mean, because again, it does I guess tie into our um to our kind of main narrative in that like one thing that the echo can't do is devour right. Like one thing that your Google smart device can't do is. 
uh, is like fulfill bodily functions, you know, is to like (laughs) feel like feel what it is like to eat or to have sex, which are the two kind of drives that are conflated in that uh, in that commercial. Right. And that like it's not just it in and and so like enjoying the product eating the eat, devouring the devour you know is um conflated with the with a human drive with a like a, a biological need to to perpetuate the species and that like um and a, a psychological drive and that like the 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 robots can't do that you know they can't they can't follow us down that um kind of that branch of it branch of experience they can't be a human cpa on turbotax uh (laughs) i was wondering whether turbotax ran that by their lawyers because they did say on tv that the robots will never be a turbotax cpa which i can't imagine is true uh, I guess maybe it's the brand name TurboTax Live. Like yeah, they'll, have they'll to change come, the yeah, brand exactly. name. Exactly. They'll call, they'll call it something else when it when the yeah. yeah the machine learning like heuristic like neural network that does your taxes. Accountants, another good white collar job that's going to get completely decimated uh, by automation. <laughs> Sorry, I don't mean to be. I mean that that long pause was uh, was you and me. I think mourning the mourning the American upper middle class because the rest of the middle class has gotten decimated. So why not? Uh, uh, why not all of it? Do you? Well, I will say that I got. I don't know about you, but I got not one but two commercials that involved a girl missing a hand playing a violin with a prosthetic arm. Different girls, different prosthetics, different violins. So. Uh, one was an insurance commercial and one was for a variety show. Yeah, I only uh, got, so there is some I only got the do. variety show one. I think that was the national commercial. Maybe it was a local commercial. Yeah, yeah. No, there was a, it was a regional insurance commercial for Mass Mutual based out of Springfield, Massachusetts. Okay. They had a, a different girl playing the violin with a prosthetic. Anyway, and this is not to diminish them because that's the other side of it. And of course, the tech companies are all very optimistic about it. Even Bumble is very optimistic about it. They're like, well, you know, with the power of technology, now Serena Williams, who's married, can date. Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> What's going on? I don't understand. Um, but yeah, I, mean, I don't want to get too sarcastic, but it's, I guess I connected more with things that are on the negative side for a variety of reasons. But there was, def- I definitely felt like the Google Translate commercial felt like it was being kind of a jerk. Uh, <laughs> it was like, hey, you, those of you who are hiking to Machu Picchu, get take pictures of the sign. <laughs> right? It's like, uh, <laughs> stop being such a jerk, Google. Can't you see we're all dealing with some stuff over here? <laughs> right? Like, uh, maybe I was the only person who felt that way. Uh, but it's something of an interesting simultaneous game at the very least. Yeah, it was. Um, a, no, I mean, I, I wouldn't call it a countervailing trend. I would call it a, a you know, competing narrative for like how to uh, how to think about the the sort of displacements that, that are being wrought. Like, you know, and I, there are great things that are happening. Like if Microsoft is making assistive devices so that people with different kinds of physical abilities can uh, play video games like more power to Microsoft like video games are great and uh, more people should be able to play them right but it doesn't oh, yeah. but it doesn't uh you know it's it's a it's a at best a kind of what selective um view of of what's going on isn't it yeah i think and it's it just i think it showed there's different perspectives yeah totally 
that some some people feel good about this stuff, some people feel bad about it. Do you want to talk about corn syrup? I I love <laughs> I loved the corn syrup ad. The the um what uh Bud Light right? W- which is made with, I, they actually say rice. It's not just rice. It's like rice sugar. It's rice syrup. It's, you know, they, <laughs> it is, it is sweetened, right? With, uh, the grain, you know, with a, a sweet syrup derived from rice instead of a sweet syrup derived from, uh, from corn, right? Which is sort of like same, same, you know, but, but, uh, the the fact that the sort of hyper purity orthorexic um you know cultural discourse of like organic foods and things like this the the you know the sort of eat clean movement or or whatever you know um expression of this trend has has reached you uh has gotten so mainstream uh, that in a Super Bowl ad, one you know global beer brand can knock another for containing corn syrup. I thought was <laughs> just glorious. Um, oh yeah, the fact that 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 has become a shibboleth not just for people who read Goop, you know, but uh, <laughs> right, like, but for people who. Um, uh, but but for for people who oh I don't know I, it's too late Pete I was going to try to make a pun on on goop and like not just for people who read goop but people who eat goop on their nachos but like <laughs> but that that's a terrible I mean that's the dummy we'll uh, we'll fix it in post I guess that reminds me of the uh, Jason Bateman commercial of uh, people descending deeper and deeper into their unpleasant real life until they realize the joy of buying a Hyundai on their phone. <laughs> it's just like, look, I don't even have to participate in the real world. I can just buy a Hyundai on my phone and everything's better. And I don't have to eat the beet, the uh, beetloaf from the vegan dinner party. <laughs> <laughs> there, there were a couple of, a couple of ads that went at the process of, of buying cars, right? Like, right. It, it does seem like that is ripe for, that is ripe for disruption, you know, because the, the process is kind of universally viewed as unpleasant. Um, I guess, I don't know, because people don't understand it and it's, and because there's like asymmetry of information is a, is an advantage for the people who are selling the cars. But, uh, you know, it, that was a, a target that came in for, you know, uh, a fair bit of, of abuse in, in this set of commercials this year. Cause yeah, there's, not, there's another I mean, app you know. called, there's another app called like true or fair or pure or good or beautiful <laughs> or righteous or something that, uh, that is a, an app for, for selling cars. It's in my notes here somewhere. I can, I can tell you, uh, I can tell you what it's called. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I can tell, I can tell it. Uh, let's see what, what else did I like? I liked, um, I liked, uh, I liked that. Don't stop me now. The queen song showed up in the Alexa ad as though Alexa Mm -hmm. itself in its, in her world domination, she was saying, she was singing, don't stop me now, you know? Yes, yes, exactly. 
<laughs> I'm enjoying myself taking over the world. So don't stop me. And the idea that like the Alexa isn't just the interest of Amazon and its shareholders and whatnot, but it's, it's actually the interest of anything around you that you can't understand or control or is opposed to you, which you should consign yourself to being unable to control, like your dog. Right, like it's like Harrison Ford can't control his dog, which is really the problem more than the fact that Amazon is taking over Harrison Ford's life and extracting as much value from him as possible. No, 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 it's the dog. And as long as it, the the confusion is located in the dog, right? This, as long as the discomfort is located in the dog, it makes Harrison look silly for not having control of the situation. Because of course your dog should obey you, right? It's it's another one of those kind of have your cake and eat it two things where he's being mocked for being in masculine while at the same time the kind of paradigm is being questioned uh it's like well you know he would have control of his dog look how funny it is that he doesn't but it's also the the, the framing device of that whole kind of sweep of alexa commercials the idea of like oh we're not all it's not all home runs that we hit here at amazon we put alexa in some pretty silly places where it's it's just like you know uh shadowy you know multinational corporations they're just like us they have uh <laughs> right they have weird uh uh little things too that happen to 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 them they make mistakes just like we do and when they do you know and like the the idea of like looking down from the international space station and seeing all the lights on earth go on and off um you know like you're like someone's like banging the side of the tv of the earth you know is uh, <laughs> is not funny strictly like it that you don't have to think too far into that scenario to get to to get to the point where it ceases to be humorous right 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 um yeah is it time to talk about Hobbs and Shaw is that because in all the darkness there was a great light I guess was it what what do you think of the i mean the the all the Marvel movies looked a little kind of dour and a little um humorless, like the the Avengers walking you know from left to right across the frame towards inevitability toward you know towards the next kind of like uh I don't know grind that that we have to get through. I I don't know a lot of the a lot of the. I'm I'm just saying it didn't have the zing of Thor Ragnarok. Um, but uh, yeah, it was weird. The Avengers the Avengers commercial didn't really strike me as interesting at all. I didn't understand part of it is of course I'm watching the show at a Super Bowl party. There's a bunch of people there. I don't really know what they were saying or why. Like what was going on in the Avengers commercial? Just that it all felt very grounded and not particularly fanciful, and also there was no action, um, which was weird. It's like they still don't want to give anything away about what happens, which makes sense. It's very early, um, and it's supposed to be a surprise, I guess. But uh, I definitely felt that commercial left something to be desired. Um, there was no – I mean, I'd already seen the Hobbs and Shaw trailer. There was nothing I – mean, there's nothing in here anything like the 24 Live Another Day teaser, which was just such a wonderful and, and just transcendental moment of – a transcendent moment of its own. You don't remember what I'm talking about, right? Yeah, but remind, remind us, yeah. Oh, yeah, wasn't it just like the gun? And, and then it said it had the beep, right, of the clock or something like that? It was something very minimalistic um, that introduced – 
that 24, that Keeper Sutherland was going to do one last ride on 24 with 24 Live Another Day. Do you? I don't remember it any better than that. Just that I got so excited. I was so excited for that. And I mean, none of the shows. I mean, Hannah looked okay. I know what Handmaid's, Handmaid's Tale is about, but I, I have to make my choices, and Hulu isn't one of them, right? Like, uh, I've read the book. It's great. You know, I mean, it's not great. You don't say Handmaid's Tale. Oh, I read Handmaid's Tale. That was a riot, right? Like, it's, it's very sad and grim um, and brutal, but a good book and a, and a good read. Um, but, uh but like Hobbs and Shaw, I'm excited about. But I've seen it already. I had seen the trailer already. So there, were, and it also wasn't a teaser. There was nothing about it that was surprising. There was nothing about Captain Marvel that was surprising. There was nothing about any of these that was surprising. I guess, I guess the scary stories to read in the dark was the equivalent for this year, because if you didn't know that that movie was coming and you love those books, that was probably a pleasant or exciting surprise. I, I don't People know. My you, party were definitely talking about it. What did you think of uh, uh, Jordan Peele's Twilight Zone? Oh yeah, I that guess because I knew that was coming too. Yeah, I knew. But... I knew exactly. Nothing, nothing was announced because everything drops on the internet. Like we've had the Hobbs and Shaw yeah. trailer for a couple days, and I mean, I feel like Hobbs and Shaw is going to be the best entry in the Triple X franchise of 2019. <laughs> You know, I mean, I just, I first of all, I love that Fast and the Furious has made the uh, the arc from being a Point Break remake to being a uh, producing organization, <laughs> to being like a presenter of arts, like like you know, like the uh, like Lincoln Center, right? Like his uh, like the Kennedy Center is like Fast and the Furious presents, right? I'm looking forward to the Fast and Furious presents the remains of the day, right? Or like Fast and Furious presents, you know, uh, all quiet on the Western Front. That that would be a little bit different than expectations, um, but I mean I'm psyched for it. I love Cyborg. I'm glad that Cyborgs have been brought. To the, I don't know whether it's the same universe, right? I guess it's the same people. But are we supposed to expect that the same sorts of suspensions of disbelief will continue to escalate in this manner up to and including the next actual mainline Fast and Furious movies? I'm not sure. But I, I also am I'm totally in favor of taking the risk and solving the problem later rather than like worrying a lot about, you know, the next thing. And how are we going to if we don't if we don't check our expectations and pull back on how exciting this movie is, then we won't have anything to top it next time is uh, not the way that I like to go about my action movies. Uh, I definitely appreciate doing your best and then doing more. Maybe not better, but more. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a, I mean, you know, yeah. cars don't fly. But the um, the I yeah I get I guess so. It it just seems like it's really gotten away. I mean, I'll be curious to see what the um what the kind of the DNA of the Fastiverse is, which we were calling, by the way, the Fastiverse long before they actually had a Fast and the Furious franchise universe, you know, that that mm-hmm. was an actual thing that they were working on, right? Like, we we were early adopters of the, uh, early adopters of the Fastiverse. But that's, um, there was just nothing recognizable because it's sort of a buddy movie, I guess. Um, I I don't. I'm I'm still not really on board with Jason Statham being a character that we're okay with having around. Right, right, right. And I'm I'm. Uh, I also like where's the family, right? Like where's the the team aspect? Where's the the thing? And like, by the way, just remember, Fast and the Furious is a movie about people who steal VCRs in Honda Civics. <laughs> 
You always have to come back to that. That is the core idea of what's going on. Every single one of the movies has had in his heart someone in the Honda Civic and or a Nissan, Nissan Skyline GTR from 1993 and or a Dodge Charger stealing VCRs to pay their rent. <laughs> right? Like, that's what it's all about. Yeah, and the, the fact that now that, like, uh, Fast and the Furious have become a, like, I- elite international team, you know, that operates uh that that you know whose uh ties with criminality in their youth make them um you know make them good uh good undercover operatives like that that i don't know that, that just seems too far from the the dna of the thing um idris elba though really any excuse to watch idris elba is a good excuse to watch idris elba but like i you know from from you know stringer stringer bell forever right but like a guy with super idris elba with superpowers um being he has superpowers, he's a cyborg. Is what it looks like, right? He's like he's like. An, I mean, I guess that's maybe that's not a distinction a lot of people care about. Maybe people would think of say the cyborg as a superhero. I tend to think of cybernetics and superpowers as being different sorts of speculative fiction conceits. Maybe uh, not, not. Not. I don't want to. I don't want to get pedantic about my Fast and Furious because that is only the one thing that people have come to expect of me more than literally anything else in my whole life over the course of the last ten years. So I don't want to do that. <laughs> but, um, uh, are you? Am I getting picking up from you, Matt? That you're not excited about Hobbs and Shaw? It just doesn't feel like a Fast and Furious movie to me. Oh. Okay. Well, I mean, it's not really. It's a spinoff, right? It's. I mean, the way I see it is that it's. The product of the fact that The Rock and Vin Diesel couldn't be in the same room at the same time. Yeah. Right? And, and it's like, you know what it is? And I bring this example up a lot. Um, it's a lot like Chaucer, right? Sure. Because like when setting out to make uh, poetry in the Middle English period into the modern period, you try to imitate the classical forms and the French forms, but then you realize that this weird, clunky, uh, bizarre language that you have that's been created from uh, this, these sort of, you know, Germanic roots and all this, you know, Latin and French vocabulary and these Old Norse influences and all this syntax has changed and stuff, and it's changing, and you realize that you can't fit the words into the big, fat, epic lines, and you have to start breaking the lines up, right? You have to go from the, like, hexameter, heptameter, whatever. You got to go down to the quatrains. You got to go down to the blank verse and the ambic pentameter and stuff because the, because you've just pulled too much awesome into it, and it's collapsing under its own weight. Um, and that's what this represents is a break. It's like, it's like there's a snapping that's happening. And I think we can mourn that somewhat, and we can say, man, isn't it a shame that the Fast and the Furious couldn't continue to stay in one piece and had to split? Um, and I guess that is true. I think that to an extent, Seven is always going to be like a peak, right? Uh, when the Fast and the Furious was at its sort of grandest and most, most together. Um, but, uh, you know, to transit Paul Walker Monday, right? Yeah. And, uh, and at this point, you know, um, but now it's like, okay, this is a Fast and Furious franchise that's about people who can't, who don't get along and aren't family. Um, although I wonder whether the movie will actually pursue that or whether it will turn around to them, of course, teaming up and being together. Um, 
is it, is it more to sort of inverted where like the other facts of fear? It's like, well, I don't really get along with you, but you're really part of my crew because I respect you. Is this more along the lines of like, I respect you, but you're not part of my crew and you never will be. And how do we negotiate that relationship? It would be interesting if you saw the movie sort of depart thematically in that respect. But I, I suspect that what this is going to end up being is a vanity project somewhat along the lines of Star Trek Nemesis, but with more kind of aesthetic commitment to what the fans are looking for. In the sense that it will have scenes in it that The Rock wanted to do, <laughs> right? Like, I think that there's, like, traditional Samoan dance in this movie that The Rock put in because he wanted his culture to, of his ancestry to be, like, showcased in this one of these movies. Um, so I would not necessarily think that the things that we're going to see in Hobbs and Shaw are dictated by the needs of the story. I think we might see a, a series of scenes that are each made for, like, personal reasons for the people involved that otherwise couldn't be made in the Fast and the Furious movies. I'm not sure. I mean, I'm just speculating here. All the information that we have is, like, a more or less uh, comprehensive plot outline of everything that's going to happen in the movie. But other than that, we don't know what's going yeah, on. We don't know, we don't know really, <laughs> so, really anything. I mean, and again, yeah. again, like, any excuse to watch The Rock be The Rock – you know, like the rock is awesome. And, <laughs> you know? and Jason Statham, you know, is, is, is also spectacular. Yeah, so, he's, he's and he just Elvis is great. Yeah. Do you think that we'll see the rest of the Shaw family, including Dame Helen Mirren in this movie? Oh gosh, that would be, that would be so wonderful. Uh, see, now well, I'm getting you excited. Tell, Helen Mirren is the hook for you for this movie. I gotta <laughs> wait till that Helen Mirren commercial comes out and then you'll go see it. And then I, yeah, then I'll be, I mean, well, gosh knows we'll, uh, we'll talk about it on the, um, uh, we'll, we'll talk about it on, you know, the, the overthinking a podcast. All right. Uh, let's close with a, uh, with an evaluation of the halftime show. Meh. All right. This has been the overthinking. <laughs> <laughs> are you, I mean, yeah. Are you, are you happy to leave it there? The, the big M on the stage was for meh. Oh, it was. I thought it was the logo for Masterclass. Like Adam Levine is going to do a. I did. I did. I think the one thought I had that was at all interesting during that is like Adam Levine was acting like the Ellen DeGeneres of the halftime show, in that he was like having guests on who would do a fun thing, and he would do a similar fun thing next to them to show that he's a fun person. Yeah. And he'd be like, "Look, I'm doing it too. I'm like Ellen DeGeneres." It's <laughs> like also Squidward was in it and hurled meteorites at the Earth. And I'm not sure exactly why Squidward was hurling meteorites at the earth. And I kind of wish the halftime show had got back around to interrogate that particularly important plot element that was otherwise neglected through the procession of the rest of the show. Uh, so I think that I don't think that that Squidward uh, marshalling the celestial forces of destruction to fire upon Atlanta from great heights and with great force, uh, you know, regardless of its immediate consequences can be neglected in terms of its long-term uh, meaning and purpose and, and other sorts of uh, uh, associations. So All right. well, what's us... up Squidward? Why do you hate America? <laughs> <laughs> why do you hate, why do you hate Atlanta? Um, yeah. All right. Uh, let's leave it there. Thanks very much, Pete, for podcasting. Thank you to everyone who listened. Who listened. Uh, Pete stayed up really late, and he uh, he uh, bore with a lot of uh, difficult technical stuff tonight. So the robots didn't want our message to get out. Yeah, that, that's definitely true. The Skype. Yeah, the Microsoft may have video game controllers, but they can't make Skype work. Uh, after you know ten years of doing this on Skype. Um, yeah, it was uh, uh, it, it was great talking to you, Pete. It always is. Uh, this this uh, annual tradition, the Super Bowl, is always a fun one. We'll be back with more Overthinking It podcast next week. Until then, Alexa, what do we subject the popular culture to? 
I'm, <laughs> a level of scrutiny. <laughs> it probably, probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. deserve. 